The scripture reading today comes from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And if you'd like to follow along, it's found on page 6 of your bulletin. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Christy. Well, we are going to study this passage, um, 18 verses from the first chapter of the Gospel of John, for the next four weeks, just sort of a slow, deep dive, reading and learning about what's often called the prologue or the introduction to John's story about Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at it slowly and carefully because it does teach us a few profound things about Christmas. The story of Christmas. And today we're just going to focus actually on just the first three verses. But before we jump in, let me say a word of prayer to get started. God, in some ways, Christmas can feel so far off. It's barely December. Just felt like Thanksgiving was yesterday. And Christmas is a few weeks away, the holiday at least. And in other ways, Christmas can feel so near, uh, but we need your help to understand the heart and the essence and the meaning of this story of God come near. God come in the person of his son, Jesus. We pray that you would teach us now. And wherever we are in our personal journeys, that you would draw us in and that you would make things clear and that you would make things helpful and impactful. God, please send your spirit. Make this time really a life-changing time for all of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
personally, I love Christmas. I don't know about you. I do know that it's a difficult time of year for a lot of people. It is oftentimes for me as well. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. But I love Christmas because Christmas turns me into a kid all over again. Does it do that for you? I love the magical quality of the season. The way in which it invites you to consider even just the possibility of joy. The possibility of peace. The possibility of love in a cynicism wrought world. Love the way in which Christmas actually draws you into a deep sense of imagination about what just might be, even the story of Santa Claus, the way in which it pulls you into wonderment, even awe, childlike anticipation, even if it's simply anticipation of the moment when you can run down and tear apart the presents under the tree. There's a childlike, joyful wonder that marks Christmas. It's dreamy. It's magical. And yes, it's true that far too often our world goes too far in commercializing this. But I've come to understand, or at least I think I'm coming to learn, that there's something right about this. That the Bible actually does present to us the Christmas story as something that ought to capture your imaginations. That the story of Christmas ought to create in you wonder and amazement and awe and turn you into a child all over again. And in fact, I think the Bible might even say that you really don't know the Christmas story unless when you hear it and you ponder it, you too are filled with wonder. This, I think, is one of the huge implications of what John the Apostle, who was one of Jesus Christ's best friends, part of his inner circle of disciples, what he is leading us towards as he opens up his gospel with these words. He's almost leading us on like a good suspense novel or a movie that you've seen. Starting to describe a certain someone without yet revealing to us who the identity of that person is. Just describing him. Giving out descriptions. Pulling our imaginations into the identity of him. And finally, coming to this grand climax, revealing to us who he is and what great thing he has done. One commentator has described this section of John as a masterpiece of planned ambiguity. And so John begins almost as if to say, well, I want to tell you something, dear audience. I want to tell you something about someone. Who, you might say, well, someone who I might describe to you as the Word of God. We see this in verse 1 three times. Word, word, word. And again in verse 14. It's a strange nickname. Probably drawn from ancient Jewish and ancient Greek uses of this term. A person that can be described as a word, as a message of God. 
as the communication of God, as the embodied story of God, description, report, explanation, the word. In other words, when God decides, I want to express myself to the world that I've made, He doesn't send a fortune cookie or an email or a text message or even just simply a book or an abstract argument. He sends a person. Revealing God and communicating God to the world. And this person, this someone, John says, let's start by calling him the word. Can you imagine having the responsibility of being God's definitive representative, God's personal communication to the world. You must be pretty important, right? To bear this title, to have this function. Could he be a prophet? Could he be just a really great communicator and explainer in chief of all the mysteries of God? No, no, John tells us more. That this someone, this word, he says, had no beginning, has no end, existed before anything else existed. This word, he says, is timeless and eternal. The very first word here, in the beginning was the word, a clear echo of Genesis 1, the very first words of the entire Bible. In the beginning was the word. Word. This someone is timeless. I mean, think for a second about how much of our lives every day, every moment, is time-dependent. How much we live with the frustration of not getting things done in a given 24-hour period. How much we're plagued by fears or frustrations with aging or the prospect of dying or even just the frustration of forgetting. Or how even time-dependent our experience of waiting is. Maybe there's something in your life that you've been waiting for. Maybe it's driving you bonkers because you haven't gotten it yet. Maybe it's something from God that you are longing for. Or how much our lives are time-dependent in the sense that if this weren't the case, everything in this world that's gradual would actually be instantaneous. That in a split second would pass before us a thousand years, and a thousand years would pass like a moment in time. How different life would be. Paula and I, even last night, looking for our plane tickets to the West Coast for Christmas to be with my family, and how much we were wrangling with, how long is the layover? Is Elena going to be able to handle such a long flight? What's the total time? How far is it from the airport to the front door? How are we going to make this work, let alone the cost of such a flight? Travel. Or learning. The things that we know and that we learn that are time-dependent, that can only be taken on after rehearsal, after thought, after study. Those of you who are students understand this well. And here is the word that in being before all time is not dependent upon time. 
never ages. Imagine that. Never dies. Imagine that. Never forgets. Never waits. Never doesn't have. Never travels. Never learns to acquire something that he doesn't already know. And if the word, this word that John is telling us about existed before anything else, then that would mean that this word isn't dependent on anything or anyone else either, right? If the word was totally fine in the beginning before all things, then that obviously means that this word doesn't need the sun to keep warm doesn't need food to eat to stay alive or drink to stay hydrated, isn't dependent upon oxygen or the different substances or elements and needs that we have physically. It means he's not also dependent upon other people for wisdom or knowledge. He's not intellectually dependent upon others because he already knows all things. Or even emotionally, that apparently... The word didn't need human beings for happiness because the word was perfectly happy and satisfied in himself. Imagine that, dear brokenhearted, longing, emotionally broken people today, all of us. Imagine that. Can you imagine what he's like, this someone, this word? And then we're told that this word made all things, made all things. Verse two, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. I mean, think about it for a second. How big and how powerful do you have to be to have made everything that is? How big? Well, how big is everything? How big are all things? Well, just for perspective, our sun shooting down sunlight and radiation so helpfully to us here, our sun is the nearest star in this galaxy, in this universe. But near is a relative term, isn't it? Because it is, you might know, 93 million miles away. 93 million miles away. If you were to bring the space shuttle out of retirement and you were to hop on and fire up that engine and take off as fast as it goes to fly to the sun, how long would it take to get to the sun? Which just seems so close, doesn't it? It would take you seven months to fly out there. Seven months. Seven months. That's a lot of honey roasted peanuts and Seinfeld reruns, right? Waiting on that flight. That's a far, far distance. And let's say you got to the sun. And let's say you decided, like, well, this place is a little hot for me. I'd like to go check out another sun, another star. See if it's any better over there. How far is the nearest, next right over nearby star from the sun? you have any idea? Can you get your minds around this? That if our sun 
were the size of a penny, which would then mean that the size of the earth, relatively speaking, would be the size of a piece of lint. If the sun were a size of a penny, then the sun's nearest neighbor, just one star over, would be 350 miles away, which is just about the distance from right here to Hartford, Connecticut. So that's from this sun to the next sun, and maybe you want to travel not just to the next star, but across the entire Milky Way galaxy. Well, even at the speed of light, that would take 100,000 years for you to get clear across this galaxy that we now live in. And maybe you want to go star hopping, not just hopping across the galaxy, but across the entire universe. And you say, I want to look at every single star that's out there and visit every single one of them in my trusty little space shuttle. According to revised estimates, there are 300 sextillion stars in the universe. I don't even know what sextillion is, right? I mean, I go as far as maybe a billion, a trillion, and then you throw in a zillion, right? Which basically means sextillion, right? That's three followed by 23 zeros. That's how many stars there are, we estimate, in the universe. Uh, To hit every single one of them, it would take you a long time and a little bit past Hartford. (laughs) How big and how powerful do you have to be to make all that. And how much beauty and ingenuity and creativity do you need to make everything that has been made? I mean, what's one of the worst things that you can say to a songwriter? Maybe you get a new album that a person just put out. Or maybe you've said this in criticism of a band that's just losing their magic touch or one that you never liked in the first place. What's one of the worst things that you can say? All the songs sound the same. One trick pony, one riff, one beat, one melody, they all kind of sound the same. Which I used to say all the time until I tried to start writing some songs and I realized they all sound the same. You know, it's kind of hard to be creative enough to really start to grab new sounds, new tunes, new lyrics, new contours, new feelings. It's a hard thing, don't you know, to be creative, to create different kinds of music, and yet how many different kinds of melodies and meters and tonalities exist in the world that has been made? What kind of creativity does it take to make all the colors in the world that have been made? All the kinds of animals that we find in this world, right? I mean, think about it. Think what it takes. to. I mean, I, I would just stick to what I love, right? If I were to make all the animals in the world, they would kind of all be like golden retrievers, right? I mean, kind of all sort of similar, all sort of the same, And here is the word that has made all things, not just with power and not just with might, but creativity and ingenuity. Can you imagine this word, this someone, 
And John tells us this word also sustains all things, doesn't just make all things, but also sustains all things. In verse 4, in him, the word was life. In other words, it's not just the big things like the planets and the stars and the things that we can't even get our minds around, outer space. It's also the little things, the details that he holds together. Recently, and I know I've been referring to this a lot in past weeks, but just spending plenty of time in the hospital and being confronted with our own physical limitations and sickness in family and in loved ones. And again, another friend who just a week and a half ago experienced some troubled breathing and just thought it was something that wasn't a big deal and decided, oh, maybe I need to go check this out at the hospital and after a day or two of different tests and thought, okay, maybe we'll be going home and maybe sent home with some medication, realized he needs open-heart surgery, uh, which just happened uh, a few days ago, praise God. It went well, uh, a solid procedure and a good recovery so far. But you think, uh, if you've been to the hospital recently or if you work in one or if you work on the front lines of anything where you're confronted with human mortality on a consistent basis... Maybe you've thought what I've started thinking recently, which is when the human body doesn't start working right, when it starts to fall apart, you start to realize what an incredible thing it is when it does work right. (laughs) That it's this incredibly fine-tuned, intricately designed Machine, system, sophisticated thing with interlocking parts and mechanical parts and chemical parts and electrical parts, literally, that when you just take the smallest thing and tweak it a little bit and put it out of whack, the whole thing falls apart and you find yourself in the ER. It's a terrible thing when you get sick or when your body starts falling apart, but put it into perspective, dear friends, how is it? How is it possible that this thing stays together at all, at all, in the first place? And not just the human body, in all the details, but the systems and the interlocking parts of all of reality. My goodness, Hurricane Sandy, did it not teach us that sometimes destruction and safety or even life and death can be a matter of inches sometimes even centimeters of rising water. Details. The word sustaining life, holding all things together. What is it? You just think about it. You go down the road, 14th Street right here, people zipping down, you're behind the wheel, or maybe you're driving up and down Interstate 95, maybe you've been traveling recently. And you think about what is it that takes These fast-moving objects moving 5 miles per hour, 20 miles per hour, 80 miles per hour, 100 miles per hour from flying right into each other every single time. We live in a world that works. It's a miracle that it works, friends. And we haven't even got to relationships where I know we are very well acquainted with the brokenness of relationships and when things fall apart. But would you consider for a moment that if you would just examine 
the selfishness of our hearts and the ways in which we so are prone to run away from other people and the way that we like to isolate ourselves and the way we're so hard to satisfy relationally with other people, the way we're so prone to violate and break and hurt and harm and condemn and judge and push away other people. Isn't it amazing that we get along at all? At all. But by the grace of God and the word, we're told, who holds all things together and sustains life, who has the vastness to hold the how many sextillion stars in place and the detailed care to hold my body and my marriage in place. Who is this word? Can you imagine this word? This someone who we're starting to understand how it is that John could just go all out and say the word was with God. The word was God. With God, here John uses this preposition with that in the Greek is commonly used to denote an intimate relationship. The word can be with God, enjoying a relationship with God. And in the language of the second half of verse 14, sort of in the way that a son relates to a father, which means the word is somehow distinguishable from God, a distinct person, and yet at the same time, the word was, is God. And this is how John sets us up for his incredible climax. His incredible conclusion, his Christmas conclusion, which we find in verse 14. That this God revealing word, this eternal and timeless one who existed before anything else existed, this non dependent one, the maker and the sustainer of all things great and small, the one who was God himself, God the Son, this word, verse 14, what? Became flesh and dwelt among us. And we're told in verse 17, his name was Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. You notice John doesn't actually say simply that the Word became a man or the Word became a human being or a person. There are words that he could have used to express that. He says the Word became Flesh. It's almost as if he wants to emphasize that in becoming a human being, God the Son became vulnerable, fleshy, hurtable, 
unkillable. By taking on humanity, he would experience all the stress of life that you and I might be feeling even this moment. So that he doesn't scorn your scatterbrainedness or your headacheness or your heart to get out of bedness or your stay up all nightness. Was that you last night this morning? He doesn't scorn it because he's been there. He's been you. He's experienced all the fears of living in a broken world, all the loneliness and feelings of neglect, all the sorrows and pain because he became flesh. He became vulnerable. He became a helpless human baby who in those first moments of life, and many of you new mothers know exactly what this is like as you've stared at your own child and all of us have been there at some point in our life, even though we don't remember it perhaps, lying there as a baby unable to do more than lie and stare and make noises and cry, needing to be fed, needing to be kept alive. The Word, the eternal Word who made all things now needing to be kept alive as to His humanity and to be changed and to be taught to talk and live like any other child. Here is God wrapped in swaddling clothes. God lying in a manger an animal trough. Reading to Elena, my daughter, earlier this week, well, frankly, the same story again and again and again because that's the way she likes it, out of her children's Bible, telling this story about the birth of Jesus, the human becoming of this eternal Word, the Word made flesh. This is what we read Six times in the last week, sometimes three times in one sitting. The God who flung planets into space and kept them whirling around and around. The God who made the universe with just a word. The one who could do anything at all made himself small. And came down as a baby. There's so many different ways we can apply all the words that John offers us in this passage. And there's a lot there theologically, philosophically, practically. But I just want to focus our attention on just this one thing. If you're hearing the story of Christmas rightly, It really ought to bring you to your knees with wonder. Because Christmas is the story of the Word made flesh. Wonder, amazement, awe. Something in you that makes you want to say, wow. The stillness of soul as you're stopped in silence before the bigness of something, the gravity of something, or the joy of something. Wonder that results in spontaneous praise, in quiet pondering, 
in prayerful reflection. As one writer and a theologian put it, J.I. Packer, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. You really need to let your imaginations run wild to get your heart around Christmas. And by imagination, I don't mean make-believe. I mean the kind of faith that lets you be a child again. Because you know, and I say this especially to those of you that maybe have been followers of Jesus for a long, long time, you can analyze the story of Christmas to death. You can theologize it to death. You can analyze it until there is no more wonderment to the story of the Word become flesh. But oh, the great invitation of the one that would come to live a true human life so that he might serve as our true representative, so that he might die in our place and live in our place because we could not save ourselves. The Word become flesh. Do you know the wonder of this Word? Do you want to know the wonder of this world? If you're tired of living a small and insignificant life, and you want to be a part of a story that's bigger than yourself, bigger than something that we can get our minds and hearts around, John invites you to the wonder of the word become flesh. If you're facing a massive struggle or hardship in your life, maybe a broken relationship that you're just convinced can't heal, won't heal, or maybe a personal vice or addiction in your life that you've just been failing to beat, John invites you to the anything is possible wonder of the word become flesh. Or if you're just dying of boredom, or the sentimentality of a one-night stand, or just feel-good religion just isn't filling your heart anymore, John invites you to the weighty, substantial wonder of the Word become flesh. Or you're feeling like God is far off. Maybe you feel like He's been neglecting you. John invites you to the story of God come near, of God come here, the wonder of the word become flesh. Do you know this wonder? Do you want to know this wonder? This is the invitation for you, for me. Let's pray. God, thank you for being God and for being near, for combining those two in the person of your son, the gift of your baby boy born in human flesh 2,000 years ago for our life, for his death in our place, for our joy, our salvation, our glory, our significance, our restored sense of meaning, our healing, our hope, our light and darkness, our everything. Thank you.
enlarge our souls and our minds that we would experience once again, or maybe for the first time, Christmas, Advent, wonder. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.